told Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve into sin, that one day, that one day there will be someone who would come and crush him. However, before that time would come, this world would experience pain and suffering that is wrought by human hands. And as you read throughout the, the story of Israel in the Old Testament, the story of, of sin and suffering becomes agonizingly apparent. You, you can't miss it. It is written all over. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God makes covenants with His people. Covenants which are, which are a type of extra binding and, and deeper meaning contracts with Israel. And, and God in these covenants said that if you follow me, if you follow me and keep my commandments, then I will bless you. And I will make you prosperous and your, your joy will be full in me. But if you turn from me, and if you follow the evil inclinations of your heart, then I will curse you. And I will, I will turn you over to your enemies. And sadly, you begin to see this, this pattern emerge in the narratives of Israel. The pattern of, of joyful obedience and blessings and prosperity that eventually turns sour as they fall into wickedness and disobedience. Now, in those times of disobedience, God would call a, a special group of people called the prophets to, to essentially be His lawyers, to be God's lawyers who would bring about God's lawsuit to the people of Israel for breaking their covenant with God. And it was the prophet's job to, to announce the judgment that was to come to Israel because of their disobedience. And you can imagine, these prophets were, um, weren't the most popular people in Israel. But it is in that setting of disobedience that we find ourselves in today as we look at Micah 5. At this time, Israel is actually split into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom of Israel. And as you begin to walk within the pages of this book, you see that Micah, who was actually around during the exact same time as the prophet Isaiah, but you see that Micah has been tasked to call out both kingdoms' fall to wickedness and idolatry. And this wickedness included the corruption of their civil and religious leadership. It included even the business practices of Israel becoming exceedingly exploitative. And worst of all, it included Israel abandoning the one true God for false idols. For images just carved out of wood. And God through Micah is saying, enough. Enough. My patience with you has run out. I've been merciful to, toward you for so long. I've been long-suffering. But now that mercy has run out. I've had enough of your wickedness. And so much of this, of this book is, is kind of tough reading because a lot of it is just seeing that unbending judgment from God, a judgment that, that Israel definitely deserved. However, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment, a, a burst of fresh air comes in. 
A moment of, of reprieve, a momentary reprieve from the harsh words of God being delivered by Micah. Because, because sandwiched in between the judgment that is being dished out upon Israel, God gives a promise. He gives a promise of merciful hope. You see, God, He tempered His judgment with undeserved mercy, which is what we call grace. That's what grace is, undeserved mercy. And he showed that toward Israel. And Micah announced that, that though Israel will fall to their enemies, delivering a blow to them, Micah 5.1 says, God would send a deliverer who would one day come and save them. But perhaps not in the way that they would expect. But what is even more magnificent What's even more amazing, and what makes this prophecy of Micah so relevant for us today during this Advent season, is that this passage does not just speak to the mercy that God shows Israel. No, this prophecy here in Micah, it's for us as well. It points to the mercy that God is going to bestow and has bestowed on you and I. And so this, this passage in Micah, don't just, don't just skip over it. It matters. It matters deeply. And it is that promise of hope in the midst of the judgment of Israel that we want to look at this morning. But first, let us pray that the Holy Spirit guides our time together. Father, you are merciful. You are so merciful. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you just, God, pour out your mercy on us this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, softens our hearts. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit opens our ears for the things that you want us to hear. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit prepares our minds for the things that you want us to, to apply to our lives, God. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you are our guide this morning. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so going back just a little bit, in Micah chapter 4, um, after speaking for three chapters of this, of this horrendous judgment that was going to be bestowed upon Israel, Micah promises Israel a future time of strength, a future time of strength and glory in a new and revived kingship that would soon come about. And he called the people of Israel to look forward to the day when this new leader who would be reviving the kingship of Israel would burst onto the scene. But the question that naturally follows is where they should look for this new and glorious leader that would deliver them from their enemies. Now, the immediate reaction of the Israelites at this time was probably to, to think of Jerusalem, right? The, the holy city which, which held the temple, the crown jewel of all of Israel. Surely, surely this new glorious leader would emerge from, from Jerusalem, from the temple mount. He would fly down from the, uh, from the, the great heights of, of privilege and power. He would come down on like a flying pegasus, ready to lead the charge in uh, recovering Israel from the hands of the enemy. Surely that is what would happen, and surely he would come from Jerusalem, right? Well, Micah, his answer to this in chapter 5, for where they are to look, and not only for where they are to look for this new leader, but what this new leader would be like 
usurped any expectations that the people of Israel probably had. Micah answers in a way that is both remarkable and wonderful. The people were not to look to the high hills of privilege and power. They weren't to uh, look to Jerusalem, but to a small town hidden in the countryside. Verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, Bethlehem is a very remarkable place for the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue and restore, to, to come out of. It was, it was a town of obscurity. It was a town so small and so insignificant that Micah not only named the, the name of the town itself, Bethlehem, but it was so small that he felt like he needed to even add in the province from where it came from, Ephratah. That's Bethlehem, Ephratah. And the reason why he did this was because he didn't want people confusing it with the bigger and more well-known Bethlehem, Zebulun. And so he felt like he needed to, to make sure, like, okay, it's not this big one over here, it's this tiny one. It's this little small one. And not only that, but Micah continues to point to the insignificance of Bethlehem by pointing out that it was, it was so small that it didn't even uh, register on the, uh, uh, the towns that were among the clans of Judah. And so when Joshua was allotting the different towns that would make up the tribe of Judah, Bethlehem was, was so small that it didn't even make the list of 115 towns and cities. It just left it off. So in modern terms, Bethlehem wouldn't even merit a, a single stoplight. Now maybe they had a gas station, maybe. Maybe a post office, if they're lucky. Definitely didn't have a TJ Maxx, so. But it was not a, a town of, of any sort of political power. It wasn't, it wasn't strategic in any sense of the word. And this is, this is remarkable. We should really hang on to this because, you see, God chose someplace small, quiet, and out of the way, and he does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. How incredible is that? How like God is that? We were speaking at community group a couple weeks ago of uh, James 2.5, where James brings to light the pattern of God to use unexpected means to, to bring about His glory, of how He often chooses the weak and the poor over the powerful and the rich. Why? Why? Because when He chooses to act this way, when God chooses to act this way, we cannot boast in the merits or achievements of men but only in the glorious mercy of God. That's it. John Piper points out that we can't say, well, of course he set his favor on Bethlehem. Look at the human glory Bethlehem achieved. All we can say is God is wonderfully free. He is not impressed by our bigness. He does nothing in order to attract attention to our accomplishments. He does everything to magnify His glorious freedom and mercy. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31. Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we see a dramatic example of Paul's words in the nativity scene, don't we? Now, when we look at the nativity scenes that are so popular this time of year, we see depicted Jesus as a baby lying in a, a barn, what we kind of imagine as a barn. And he's laying in this, this wooden box, sort of like the uh, little wooden box that we saw last night if you were here for the, uh, for the movie. And the reason for this, we're told in Luke 2, is because there was, there was no guest room. Yeah, just like that. Good job, man. Yeah. If you need an example, just look down here. Owen has a picture of it, so there you go. <laughs> uh, but the reason why this happened was because there was no guest room available to Joseph and pregnant Mary anywhere in Bethlehem when they had to make that journey for the census. However, interestingly enough, Jesus was more than likely not born in what we think of as, as typically as a barn. Instead, in that region of the world and in that time, animals were actually often kept in a cave, not, not a barn, not a wooden structure. And in that cave would have been this, this chiseled out alcove where the hay would have been laid for animals to eat out of. That would have been the manger, this chiseled out alcove where our Savior was placed, a manger that was actually made of rock. So again, I ask the question, why? Why? Why there? Why in Bethlehem? Why in some cave? Why in some chiseled out alcove used for feeding livestock? Why? Why that place for the king of kings to come? Well, friends, I quote John Piper again, and he says, God chose a cave so no innkeeper could boast. He chose the comfort of, of my inn. He chose a manger so no woodworker could boast. He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. And he chose Bethlehem so no one could boast the greatness of our city. The wonders of our city constrained the divine choice of God. Another Bible scholar says this about God's choice of Bethlehem. He says, the deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. And so, friends, let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Not, not glory to us. Not glory to us. We, friends, we get the joy. We get the joy of our salvation, but he gets the glory. And brothers and sisters, he chose you. And he chose me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouths of all human boasting. He chose us while we were dead in our sins, spiritually anemic and weak. 
And just as the newness of a brand new life was born in that hollowed out, empty, and dead cave Christmas morning 2,000 years ago, newness of life through faith in Jesus alone is born within our cold and dead hearts, bringing about a newness of life. Praise be to God. That is first and foremost the meaning and the purpose of why Bethlehem. But there's even more. There's even more to this prophecy of Micah and the significance of Bethlehem that he reveals to us in this prophecy. Read with me the second half of verse 2, if you will. God through Micah says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and ancient days. Now this passage where it says the old and ancient days is not necessarily talking about the prophecy in Genesis. But within the context of Micah, it is most likely an allusion to a prophecy made to King David. You see, King David was not only considered by Israel the the greatest ruler of Israel, but his hometown was where? Where do you think? Bethlehem. Exactly. (laughs) Bethlehem. So the ancient Jewish people, reading this prophecy of Micah, would immediately think of King David and the promise that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7, where it says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so Micah is telling Israel that the heir of David, the one whose whose throne would be established throughout all eternity, that he was coming. The promised king of kings will be born in the lowly city that David himself would be born in, in Bethlehem. How amazing. How wonderful is it that God, in the midst of pronouncing his judgment to Israel for wickedly sinning against him, says, but oh, Israel, oh, Israel, despite what you have done, Despite the grandeur of your sin, despite your wickedness, despite the fact that you have spat on my name and all of the good that I have done for you, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my promise not to just you, but to David. How many of you would keep a promise out of love, out of love for someone who has turned their back on you, who's betrayed you, who has spit on you. Being completely honest, I would, I would find that pretty hard myself. But you see, God is different. He's different than we are. And Jesus was the confirmation. He was the fulfillment of all promises made by God in the Old Testament. Paul in Romans 15.8 says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness to sow his truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In order to confirm the promises made to Noah, to Abraham. To confirm the promises that he made to Moses, to David, 
all of the promises. And in 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, all of the promises in God, they find their yes. They find their yes in Christ. Every single one of them. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is such good news for us. This is such good news for us because everything that we have been promised in Christ, the promise of eternal life for those who believe in Him, the promise to become not just, not just uh, having new bodies, new resurrected bodies, but to actually become co-heirs with Christ in all things. Those promises are secure in Christ. They're secure. Just as God kept His promises given here in Micah, to send the heir of David, to send the greater king who was born in this lowly town in Bethlehem. Just as he was good on his promise, or just as he made good on his promise, he will keep his promises to us. All of them. And that is the greatest Christmas gift, isn't it? The birth of Jesus Christ is the confirmation of all of God's divine promises. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us... Let's hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Praise God. Praise Jesus. But though Jesus was coming to be the greater king, his reign would be different. His reign would be different than any other king of Israel. It would be different even than the kingship of David. Micah uses very interesting words in order to express the, the type of king that Jesus would be. So take a look at verse 4 with me. It says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of, his, of the Lord his God. And so the, the category that God chose to describe the coming ruler through Micah is that of a shepherd. Of a shepherd. It doesn't seem very kingly. But Jesus is a, is a gentle shepherd. He is a shepherd king who is going to provide for the needs of the flock. But at the same time, he comes in the name and the majesty of God, for he himself is God. Commentator Stephen Um points out that Micah 5 is the context that, that helps us appreciate and understand Jesus' famous words in John 10.14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He is the good shepherd. When the shepherd of the flock comes, he rules his flock with gentleness, being completely aware of their needs. And what God is asking, and what he is requiring of his flock, of you and I, Christian, is not legalistic dedication to a set of religious rules, but submission. Submission. He is calling us to follow him. Because he, he, as our shepherd, has an acute awareness of what our lives truly need, of what our hearts truly need. And we, like sheep, <laughs> we so often go astray. So often. And we desperately need the gentle hand of our shepherd king to lead our lives, to guide us. 
as Tim Keller pointed out in his sermon on John 10, deep within our hearts, deep within all of our hearts, we long for a shepherd to come and to care for our needs. If and when we have problems, we want to know if there is anyone out there who is able to take care of us. Is there someone out there who is going to make everything right? Is there someone who is going to bring control out of the chaos of my life? We are looking for a shepherd. But where do we find one? Where do we find the shepherd? Now, if you're single, if you have thoughts of being married, you might think that perhaps your, your future spouse could be that shepherd. For those of you who are married, perhaps that's what you were thinking before you were married. But then what happened? No. You find out that your husband or your wife is, is not even being close to that shepherd that you thought that he or she would be. Or that, you're, that you truly needed. Sorry, honey. Some of us think that, that our parents are the ones who are going to take care of all of our needs. Others look to our nation's leader or the person that we wish was the nation's leader. We all want somebody to be our shepherd, to, to rule us and to bring us to the place where we think that we need to be. And we get surprised and disappointed, even angry, when we discover that, that none of those people can truly meet our needs and expectations. And given that others must disappoint us, not that they might, but that they will. Many of us look closer to home for a shepherd. We look to ourselves. But ultimately, if you live with the weight of trying to shepherd your own life, friends, that is a lot of responsibility. That is a lot of responsibility. And you might be very self-sufficient. And you might be very gifted. And you might possess all sorts of abilities and competencies and, and aspirations and potential. But if you believe that you can be the ultimate shepherd of your life. Friends, again, I say that that exerts pressure that is far too great for even the greatest among us to handle. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're not qualified for that position. We're not. We are underqualified or even possibly disqualified. We are not competent to do that kind of work. That's why we wrestle with this in, in ourselves over and over again. That's why when we try to take the reins of our lives, when we try to take control, things typically just get worse. Or even if you think things are getting better, you eventually hit this place where you just feel empty. And you look back and you realize that you're not where you need to be. I'm, I'm speaking from experience, guys. Over the last couple of weeks, I tried to take control of this church and by my own power, figure out how we can bring more people in, how we can be more attractive. And the Lord gently corrected me. It made me realize that, no, He is the true good shepherd of this church. And there's a harvest to be had, but, but he will bring it in his own way. We just got to be obedient. We just have to be faithful. We can't shepherd our own lives. And what we ultimately need 
is somebody who will come and shepherd us in a gentle and yet powerful way. And friends, this is a Sunday school answer. But Jesus is the eternal, all-powerful, unexpected, humble, good shepherd king. He is the leader and guide that all of us seek for. He seeks his sheep. He seeks his sheep. He guides us into fresh pasture. And he protects us. Ultimately, he laid down his life for us. He is our divine shepherd. And he is supremely, uniquely, and perfectly good at it. Deuteronomy 33.12 says, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long. And the one the Lord loves, listen to this, the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. What an amazing image. What a powerful image. The one who is beloved the one who follows the Lord as his sheep dwells safely because he dwells between God's shoulders. How amazing is that? And so friends, if you're lost, or are you lost? Are you toiling? Are you restless? Are you wondering whether or not God is going to help you and deliver you? Well friends, guess what? If you are in Christ, he promises that he will. And what do we just get done talking about? All of God's promises are yes in Christ. He will deliver you from those things. And as we look at the cross, we know he already has. And he may lead us through periods of trials, of exile, or difficult circumstances, but that's not because he doesn't care. Friends, he has an ear to the ground. He sympathizes, he empathizes with you. And friends, he knows your real needs. He knows your needs better than you know your own needs. And he knows that our, our main problem, it's not the suffering that we experience in this lifetime, as real as that is. But that is not our main problem. It is our sin. It's our sin. And God rescues us from our sin and restores us for the life that we long for. And he did it by coming to be the shepherd that laid down his life for his flock, who now cares for us and shepherds us through this life until he comes again. This image in Deuteronomy that we just spoke of, of being carried on the back of God's shoulders, is actually another shepherding metaphor. You see, when one of the flock ran away and got lost or got injured, the shepherd would, would leave all of the rest. He would leave the 99. And he would come for the one, and he would pick up that injured sheep, that lost sheep, and carry it on his shoulders back to the flock. And so, friends, if you're, if you're broken this morning, if you feel lost, if you feel like you don't know what to do with your life, if you are just tired of going your own way, then I, I implore you, cry out. Cry out to the good shepherd because he will carry you. He will carry you. And more than that, as Micah says in verse 5, he will be your peace. 
but be your peace. And this peace that Micah speaks of, that comes from the shepherd king, that comes from Jesus, this peace that he embodies, this peace, this peace that he is, is described with the Hebrew word shalom. Now shalom is, is an all-encompassing, holistic peace that has no boundaries, none. And Jesus came to bring a peace that, that invades our hearts, that comes into our very souls and infuses us with a blissfulness, knowing that we are children of the Most High God. A peace that comes from the Holy Spirit who is preaching to our souls daily that our eternal destiny is secure even as we struggle and suffer in this life. Even more than that, especially in the context of Micah, this, this shalom is the peace that God will bring to the nations when He returns again. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, when all nations of the earth will bend their knee before their shepherd king and all of the enemies of Jesus will be put to shame. And His shalom, His, His peace and rest and glory will fill this earth. And it is on that day, it's on that day that Micah's prophecy at the end of verse 4 that his name shall be great to the ends of the earth will be fully realized. In all strife, all war, all famine, all family trauma, all disease, all viruses, all bitter political divides will cease. They will come to an end. And the shalom of Christ will reign supreme. That great Christmas carol that we actually sung today, that is sung in so many churches and homes around Christmas, will be fulfilled. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. What a magnificent Christmas prophecy we have here in Micah 5. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I don't even know where to begin. God, I'm so thankful, God, that we can be here this morning. That we can come together. Lord, we can, we can talk. We can sing to the glories of your righteousness. God, this, this righteousness that, God, that you have imputed to us, that you have given to us, that you have clothed us in, so that when we, when we stand before you, Lord, God, you don't see our sin. Because it's been washed away. But instead you see your son's righteousness. And you welcome us into your kingdom with open arms. So Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you for that Christmas morning so many years ago. When you sent your son to die for us. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.